a message for liberals and the mainstream media. You can't handle the truth! So, buckle up, snowflakes, because we're about to deliver the politically direct best in conservative commentary, news, and investigative reports. We're telling the truth, and we're not gonna stop. Okay, liberals, back under the bridge with the rest of your fellow trolls, and oh yeah... Thanks for listening to Right Side Patriots. They are special, special people. On RSPRadio1.com. Welcome to Right Side Patriots on RSPRadio1.com. Craig Andreessen at the National Patriot. Diane Sori at the Patriot Factor. Tuesday night, 8th of August. Welcome to it. Hello, Diane. Hello, Craig. And how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Tuesday night. Hey, look, we're going to have fun around here uh, coming up this weekend. Uh, just a little programming note, folks. We will not be on the air this Friday. Right. I've got county fairs uh, to attend to, uh, doing live remotes at the county fair up in uh Martin, South Dakota, on Friday, and in Valentine on Saturday of this week. So, and what I love about when that happens for Craig to Craig is on Saturday, I don't have to post in the morning. Kind of, kind of nice for both of us. Yes. I love the county fairs up here in this part of the world because they are a real slice of Americana. Well, we won't go into what kind of slice they are. They're just uh, not to my liking. Our Florida county fairs are fun. And there's no, you know, thought of these animals that were raised and, and they're really in good shape and they look really nice being turned into dinner. Well, you know, we have the the animal exhibits at one end of the fair and all the fast food, including hamburgers, at the other end of the fair. Oh, so that, that's that, blah, blah. No, as, a, as an almost lifelong vegetarian. <laughs> and one of the big things at the Cherry County Fair, that's held in Valentine, Nebraska, one of the big things every year is the turtle races. All the kids bring in turtles, and they have usually about eight to ten rounds before they get to a champion turtle racer. Well, that could be fun, I guess. It, it's it's a riot. It's a riot. There's there's kids there, like three-year-olds, four-year-olds, all the way up to ten or twelve-year-olds, and little turtles and big turtles. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, it, it is absolutely funny. And, of course, there's always a rodeo. Um, you know, which is highly entertaining. And the little kids get to take part in the rodeo in what they call mutton busting. Ah, well, let's tell people. I went to one rodeo in my life because 
we were, this was when I was younger, and we were vacationing in an area that had a rodeo, and the people we were with, oh, let's go to the rodeo. I had never seen a rodeo before. I didn't really know what a rodeo was, but halfway through, I walked out of that place, and I said, this is the most disgusting thing I have ever seen. A poor <laughs> little baby bull calf whatever that that animal is being roped and dragged and whatever i i just thought it was the most barbaric thing i have ever seen i i love a good rodeo you know i mean i look at it and i say you know what that that little steer they're roping right there in about six months might be my dinner oh how disgusting <laughs> so anyway that's that's what i've got coming up this weekend so we won't be on the air friday so yeah, we'll we'll take a little break and we'll be back next tuesday right with two very interesting topics now what are you covering for next tuesday i am covering point blank traitor thy name is mike pence well, that doesn't leave much to guess about in that title. No, it doesn't. Now, I don't have a title yet uh, for my commentary coming up for next week, but what I'm delving into is the juxtaposition between what we now know about UFOs, what we heard in testimony before a congressional committee a couple of weeks ago, and the stance on UFOs from the holier-than-thous. Yeah, and I have had a sneak peek at that article, and I'll tell you, it is snark bar none. It is really funny with a lot of truth in it, and it's a it's a good piece. Whether you believe in what he's going to say or not, it is a great piece. I had fun. When I was right, and you that. do need to send me a title, Craig. Like, yeah, I'll come up with one. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll come up with one. You know, I mean, it, it's one of those. I, I mean, I looked at it again uh, this afternoon. And I thought, what am I going to title this piece? Uh, the holier than thou are going to be really mad at me. Good title. <laughs> that, that well, that's honesty and titling. It is. You know? And you Look, forget, since we're not going to be on Friday, and I have to post the upcoming show, I need a title. <laughs> I'll get you a title. Uh-huh. I'll, get you, I'll get you. I'll come up with something tomorrow. Now, tonight, you're dealing with the reality of revenge politics. Yes. I'm dealing with historical facts versus liberal lies. Mm-hmm. So that's what we got coming up later in the show. But let's start with quick hitters because there's more and more stuff coming out about the whole Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, uh, you know, business dealings, bribery scandal. You know, you call it whatever you want. But uh, Matt Taibbi, and a lot of people might remember that name from the Twitter files. He was one of the journalists who was uh, releasing a lot of the Twitter files right after Elon Musk took over. Twitter, which is now X, but mm-hmm. um, Matt Taibbi has really gone off on the whole J6 indictment. I mean, he's raking that indictment over the coals, and he's no fan of Donald Trump. Not at all. 
And uh, some of the things he has said are quite, quite interesting. And basically, he boiled down to what this whole thing is about. And it's something I have said time and time again, and we've talked about on the show. But this is simply because Trump beat Hillary Clinton in 2016, denying Obama his time sensitive, as I call it, third term in office. Because his third term in office under Biden has sure not worked out well for him. (laughs) No, it's been pretty rough. You know, yes. and, I, and I think it's getting rougher. But Taibbi really picks apart that indictment almost point for point. And he's 100% correct in what he's saying. It's interesting because he used to be uh, an editor for the Rolling Stone. Uh, right. He's a liberal. And yet he's one of those few members in journalism today that's interested in getting to the truth of a matter, not just politicizing a matter. Right. And, you know, we all say liberals are bad and this and that, but we don't literally mean every single liberal out there is bad. And Matt Taibbi is a perfect example of that. Well, he believes in a free press and he believes in an honest press. And what he's seeing in this indictment is a culmination of politicizing and, uh, you know, a witch hunt, for lack of a better term. But from a legal standpoint, he's looking at it from a legal standpoint, and he's saying, this thing just doesn't hold water. The way way, uh, Jack Smith wrote up this indictment, it doesn't make any sense. Not at all. In fact... um He goes into specific details about why this doesn't doesn't work. You know, he specifically zeroes in on President Trump's state of mind as being central to the indictment, meaning Smith does that. But state of mind is not tangible written on paper or recorded, spoken, whatever. A state of mind is subjective. So in other words, he's basing a case, Smith, on his own sub, you know, subjection and, and conjures? It doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and you know, other people's um, you know, ideas of what Trump may have been thinking. The only person who really knows what Trump was thinking is Trump. Exactly. And, and, you know, if you're going to base a legal case on thought, well, you you don't have any kind of a legal foundation to stand on. And that's part of what Matt Taibbi is saying about this case. He looks at it from the legal aspect and he says, there's really no there there. You know, he and, and he goes further and he says, if Smith wanted to put together a case that actually stood a chance of of not getting overturned, then he should have done A, B, and C, and instead he did, you know, D, E, and F. And, yeah. you know, and, and what Taibbi says makes perfect sense. But Smith is just out for blood. I mean, you know, and that's what the, the liberals want is blood in the water. 
But this isn't the way to do it because this case, while he may, Smith may win in the D.C. court, it's going to be overturned on appeal because the case literally is made up of a house of cards. Wow. What he also based this on was a 1969, what they call landmark case. It was called Bradenburg versus Ohio. And that set an extremely high bar for government intervention in speech cases. Now, what they did with that was make standard likely to incite or produce imminent lawless actions. So what happened with that was a treating campaign basically began in November and produced, according to Smith, a general atmosphere of mistrust and anger that by January sort of incited the crowd on January 6th into a, you know, behavior that Brandenburg in the case ruling actually says is not illegal. So what happened on January 6th, all the so-called violence, the anything but insurrection, all the nonsense. Remember the police letting the protesters into the Capitol? None of that has any bearing in reality, according to Brandenburg. So if you don't have that, according to a case that has already has precedent, you don't have a case. Well, not only that, but in the indictment, the quote-unquote insurrection is never mentioned. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's not mentioned because there's no evidence to support it. Exactly. You know, so Taibi is 100% correct. This case really boils down to what was Trump thinking? You can't... He, there's no legal precedent to convict anybody on thoughts. Right. And remember, folks, the speech Trump gave, which we played on one of our past shows, there is not one mention of violence. He specifically tells people to peacefully protest. So here it is. You have his words on tape. Not one word instigating violence, and you're charging him with inciting violence? Well, How? How did he incite violence? You know, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, pretend to be an attorney here, but if I were Trump's legal team, one of the questions I would be posing in a courtroom is how can a man be guilty of inciting violence when the same man offered 10,000 National Guard troops to protect the Capitol. And, and it was turned down. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean. Well, how they twisted that, there was a, a mention of some, how that was twisted, that Trump knew it would be turned down because he recommended it. Again, That's supposition. Again, you're guessing at what a man thinks. Exactly. You know, the fact is, he offered it. Now, with with all the chitter chatter going on ahead of January 6th, there were uh, reports of credible threats for January 6th. He offers 10,000 National Guard troops 
Nancy Pelosi turns him down. Well, okay. Why? Why was that turned down? You know. Well, her son was directly, you know, in the crowd there. Well, still were members of the FBI. Exactly. You know, so I mean, this case, you know, they're going to win in the DC court. I guarantee it because you know, the DC court, the the jury pool there hates Trump. Right. So they'll they'll convict him for anything. But it will be overturned in appeals, whether it appeals at uh, you know the appellate court level or at the Supreme Court level, it'll get overturned. So, you know, there's going to be a lot more coming out. But it's interesting when a guy like Matt Taibbi looks at the case and goes, what the hell? Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Now, Devin Archer, that, that whole thing behind closed doors with Congress when he was being questioned under oath... We're still getting bits and pieces of information from that that are turning out to be real bombshells, including the fact that he was questioned directly and directly answered as to whether or not Joe Biden ever had anything to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. And according to Devin Archer, oh, hell yeah. Yeah, even according to Devin Archer, there was a dinner back in 2015, which Biden attended, shook everybody's hand, and joined in the conversation. Right. And, you know, Interesting. Biden Biden wrote a note uh, to Devin Archer later apologizing that he didn't have enough time to really sit and talk to him, and he looks forward to having him back to the White House to, to sit down with him and, and have a conversation. It flies in the face of everything Joe Biden has said for years regarding never having any idea regarding his son's business dealings, his son's business partners, never sat with him, never talked to him, didn't really know him, didn't know anything about him. And now, according to Devin Archer, and he's got the information to back it up, there were scores of times when... Joe Biden had phone calls with the business partners, had dinners with the business partners, had the business partners over to the White House, so on and so forth. Well, the dinner that I just mentioned, which is very damning, actually was attended by Burisma executives. Not that not that Joe had any idea what was going on in the business no. world of, of Hunter Biden, but no. yeah, not, Burisma, not at all. Burisma, not at all. <laughs> Burisma execs were at the dinner. Yeah. Now, are we to really believe that all they did was talk about the weather? Really? If you buy that, I have a bridge to sell you, or better yet, some swampland. <laughs> I mean, I you know. The, the walls seem to be closing in. There's, there's uh, now reports that new information is going to be coming out in the next week or so uh, regarding the whole bribery uh, end of things and uh, other dealings that Joe had with the business partners. Put, put business in quotes, you know, because that wasn't a business. That was a shakedown. Exactly. A I mean, big time shakedown. So th- this thing is, and, and of course, you know, when the next big bombshell hits, that's when they'll indict Trump for Atlanta, you know? <laughs> so, you know, 
Trump is going to be indicted for any and everything. You know that. Oh, yeah. You know, and you got to hand it to Trump after this last indictment when he came out of the courtroom there. He said, one more indictment and I've got the nomination. <laughs> yeah, but one thing, and this was reported in some of the papers. I don't know if any corroborating proof has come out about it, but apparently what they're reporting is that Trump is going to be dismissing quite a few of his lawyers and represent himself. I hope and pray that is not true. I, I don't think it is. Uh, he's not an attorney, never has been an attorney. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't think that's true. I think that's, it's all over the internet. Well, yeah, but you know what? So I don't mean just hearsay. I mean, it's on legitimate news sites. I wouldn't put it past him to make that boast. Hey, maybe I'll just represent myself, you know, but that's not going to happen. I guarantee I sure hope so. I guarantee it won't happen. Hey, look, we've got a few minutes left here, and there's something really kind of staggering that I think we need to talk about before we get, you know, into our own segments here tonight. And that's the the hearing that was held with Gold Star families um, testifying before members of Congress about the completely horrifically botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. What people have to understand about Afghanistan, first and foremost, everybody was tired of Afghanistan. There's no denying that. You know, 20 years is a long time to, to put our treasure and our military in a place. However, by the time Trump was in office, we were no longer at war per se, we were more of a peacekeeping operation. Right. And while we were there, the Afghan people were free. There was semblance of normalcy. Women were treated as equals. Everything was sort of status quo in a good way. And then, before Trump, Obama comes. And we all know where Obama's allegiances always lie. We don't even have to say it anymore. Right. But like you and I were discussing before the show, President Trump had laid out specifics for a withdrawal, specifics that the Taliban had to follow. And the Taliban were not following anything. And by the time Trump left office, you know, that was kind of forgotten by the media that Trump had certain stages that had to be met. In comes Biden, and he does what Obama probably told him to do, get out of there, they're my brethren, and all hell breaks loose. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that Obama wanted to turn Afghanistan over to the Taliban. Exactly. But the worst of what Biden did when those members of our military were killed at the airport. The way he treated not only the bodies of our military members, but the way he treated the family, 
the lack of remorse, the no apology, the actual, it's turning out, a testimony came out, things that, that their loved ones had on their person never returned to them. In other words, they were taken. This was a slap in the face, not only to those killed and their families, but a slap in the face to our military in general. That's my opinion. Well, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, when, when you listen to the testimony of those family members, and they testified for almost an hour and a half mm-hmm. uh, the other day, and I'm sure they could have gone all day. Um, some of the stories they told were just horrific. Right. And, you know, the, the like you said, the way they were treated, the family members were treated, the bodies were treated. You know, it's it's just insanity. There was also a story that came out of one Marine who was there and was severely wounded. He lost uh, his right arm and his right leg uh, at the Abbey Gate blast when that uh, mm-hmm. suicide bomb went off. Right. And this guy, uh, Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, uh, was recovering at Walter Reed and some people came in and said, would you like to meet the president? He's going to be here today and would like to take some photographs. And this guy said, sure. But he said, I want to get off my meds uh, right now so I can be at least somewhat coherent uh, when the president comes in. So he got off the meds thinking, or after being told that the president will be here within the hour, well, it was four hours later that the mm-hmm. president finally got to Walter Reed And by the time he got to this guy's room, the guy could not remember who the president was because, you know, he had been so medicated and been through such a traumatic event. His mother was sitting there, and his mother told him it's Joe Biden is the president. And he said, oh, my effing God. God. So Biden gets there, and he reaches out to shake the guy's hand. He doesn't have one. He doesn't have an arm. His other arm is in a cast, and he's immobilized. So he said Biden reached out and just grabbed a hold of his fingers and started talking to him about his own son being a former military member. And and this kind of crap went on and on and on, and the guy couldn't figure out, why is this guy even here? Right. And people need to remember that Biden's son, Bo, did not die during military service. He died of glioblastoma, brain cancer, decades after he left the military. Okay, so Biden doesn't even know when his son died, you know, to put it in the proper context. But one of the stories that really got to me that was told by um, a gold star mom named Kelly Barnett, whose son was killed at the airport and she was told by the u.s government that he died immediately he did not suffer at all well it turns out later that eyewitnesses had told her that he lived for quite a while in agony you know because all hell was breaking loose but she also said that her son and his group were told to stay in the airport, to clean up the airport, so when the Taliban came in, the airport would be clean. Hello, 
This is the enemy. We have to clean up for the enemy. This is what Biden ordered. Biden ordered it because Obama ordered it. Because exactly. because to Obama, our military is really nothing but a bunch of uniformed janitors. Right. Well, what happened also was when she tried to bring out this truth to the government officials, she was basically told to shut up. She gave all that testimony before Congress the other day. I'll tell you, there wasn't a single family member there that had a damn thing good to say about how any of that went down. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was quite uh, an earful and an eye-opening situation, I think, for a lot of members of Congress. Most of them knew how bad it was to begin with, but to hear it right. directly from the families of those who were killed in that botched withdrawal really had an impact. Right. It, this was a disgrace. It was a disgrace for our military, not because of them, but because their so-called commander-in-chief was an enemy sympathizer. I, I, I don't know what else to call him. No. I mean, that's, that's putting it about as clear and as succinctly as possible. But listen, no. we're just about out of time here in this segment. We've got two segments to go. When, uh, well, let's see, about a half an hour from now, I'm talking about historical facts versus liberal lies. But when we come back from this, our bottom of the hour break, Diane's got it with the reality of revenge politics. Stay with us. There's more Right Side Patriots after this. You're listening to Right Side Patriots Radio, the best in conservative commentary, news, and talk where we do away with the politically correct nonsense and give you the politically direct truth. This is the home of Right Side Patriots every Tuesday and Friday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with Craig Andreessen and Diane Sorry. We're working to make this country great again from the right and leaving puddles of melted snowflakes on the left. Thanks for listening to Right Side Patriots, your best bet on the Internet. You're listening to RSPRadio1.com. Hi guys, Diane Sorry from The Patriot Factor on thepatriotfactor.blogspot.com, where I found a home base seven years ago after becoming one of Facebook's long-time Facebook felons, or so I've been told by the Facebook gods. On my blog, you will find not only my articles, but our Right Side Patriots investigative reports, as well as stories and links to and from well-known writers and bloggers, plus what I call almost daily memes, my snarky take on news of the day. And for more great takes on the issues of the day, check out The National Patriot at thenationalpatriot.com, where you can read Craig's insight into all the current news happenings. And join us both on Right Side Patriots every Tuesday and Friday night from 7 to 9 p.m. EST at rspradio1.com. Welcome back to Right Side Patriots on rspradio1.com. 
Greg Andreessen at the National Patriot, Diane Sori at the Patriot Factor. If you miss any part of tonight's show, go to rspradio1.com tomorrow morning, click the podcast button, and listen to your heart's delight. Yes. Okay, so, Diane, we're engaged in a little something. Uh, It's the 2024 presidential campaign. And it reeks of one thing and one thing only. And uh, I I think you would have to be living in a cave in Tora Bora not to realize this. And you took it on in a piece called The Reality of Revenge Politics. Right. And first, let me... um read you a little note that I put on top of this article. And I say, let me begin by saying that I support Donald J. Trump in his crusade against the Democrats' partisan-driven, witch-hunt-based indictments, and that I will vote for him for the third time if he becomes the Republican nominee for president. Okay, lately, The word revenge has been bantered about to the point where it has taken on a whole new meaning from its normal definition of being but one, one's desire for vengeance or retribution for what is usually a self-perceived wrong, two, the act of retaliation in order to get even for said wrong, and or three, an opportunity or a means by which one can garner a sense of personal satisfaction for what said individual has deemed to be but a wrong done to their person, their family, or their character. But the one simple word revenge has now seen an adjective being added after it. For entering into the mix of today's vocabulary is the word politics. And we know that when the word politics becomes part of any discourse, the tone of said discourse morphs from what was a civil conversation into a partisan-driven game of sorts, a game where the gauntlet is thrown down by the wayside with the expectation that the other side will pick up said gauntlet, no matter the consequences that surely will follow. But know that Revenge politics is not the sole property of one political party alone, for both the Republican and Democrat parties seem to be fueled on by the overwhelming need for revenge. In the case of the Democrats, revenge politics is still ongoing for Hillary Clinton's 2016 loss to Donald Trump, for said loss denied Barack Obama his time-sensitive, much-needed, albeit unconstitutional, third term in office. And while he garnered said third term with Joe Biden's still questionable 2020 win over Trump, we all know how Biden worked out now, don't we? And as for the Republicans, the need for revenge now comes replete with the 2024 candidacy of former President Donald Trump, who while seeking revenge for the fiasco that was his aforementioned question lost to Joe Biden, he now faces past actions and words that have come back to haunt. Simply, while revenge politics has taken over the entirety of today's body political, it's Trump's fine-tuned into an art form version of revenge politics that sees both veiled alludings of possible future violence as well as vulgarity-laced words defaming some of his own Republican nominee opponents coming into play. In fact, 
Trump's words, quote, I think it's a very dangerous thing to even talk about because we do have a tremendously passionate group of voters, much more passion than they had in 2020 and much more passion that they had in 2016. I think it would be very dangerous, end quote, have now come back to haunt. This carefully crafted alluding to violence was directed towards his supporters during a recent interview on Iowa's The Simon Conway Show and done so after being asked what message would he send to such supporters if the DOJ's appointed special counsel Jack Smith were to jail him prior to his trial? And Craig, then there's this little faux pas that too has come back to haunt. As in remember that in Trump's mind, how dare any Republican run against him for the nomination? How dare anyone try to take away from him what he still believes is owed him? You know, it's interesting because revenge politics is usually laser-focused at, at a specific target. But mm-hmm. that's really not the case when it comes to Donald Trump in this 2024 presidential campaign. It seems like instead of a laser beam, he's using a floodlight. Yeah, and focusing on certain candidates alone. Revenge politics as its verbal worst. For this time, the anger that Trump feels is not directed at Joe Biden, his still for now Democrat opponent, as it should be, but is directed at his former friend, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who he claims lacked loyalty to him after announcing his own 2024 presidential bid, despite having backed DeSantis's first run for Florida governor. Quote, they say, will you run against the president? Will you run against the president? He says, I have no comment. I said that means he's running. This son of a bitch is running against me. I got him elected and he's running. Those were Trump's exact words said to Washington Examiner congressional reporter Reese Gorman. And these words are never mind the fact that with Trump's late-in-the-race support of DeSantis during his first uh, run for governor, DeSantis won that gubernatorial election by just a mere 4.4%. And that while running for re-election in 2020, DeSantis ran solely on his own record, merits, and accomplishments without any support from Trump whatsoever, while winning re-election by an unheard of 20% over his Democrat opponent, Charlie Chris. Words spewed by Trump with a vengeance that overrides common sense, logic, and tangible reality. For the reality is that revenge, whether it be personal or political, never works out as hoped for or as planned. And this is especially true when the sum total of a candidate's political campaign is now being driven by and based upon the need for revenge, leaving the should-be-addressed issues of the day to simply be ignored. And so while President Trump's need for revenge 
does have considerable merit in its own right. What with the Democrats witch hunt after witch hunt showing no signs of abating, said need for revenge seems to have overtaken Trump's entire persona. A dangerous personality shift in its own right, for in doing so, Trump has allowed his emotions to overtake the needs of both our country and we, the American people. A personality shift? How so? Remember back in 2016 when then-candidate Trump spoke of what he would do to set America right again after the eight long years of Barack Obama and his socialist-driven transformation of America agenda? Remember Trump's laying out his pro-America agenda, as in his America first and make America great again agendas? I surely remember them, as well as I remember Trump's issues, focus, campaign speeches, tweets, and American exceptionality ads, all of which culminated in his 2016 win against the shrew who believed the election was owed to her. And I remember four years of economic prosperity, respect for America, and love of country under Trump's stewardship even while he and his family faced the onslaught of Democrat lies on an almost daily basis. And Trump did so with a tenacity and fortitude that must be admired, while his politics and policies held strong to the Constitution, being the law of our land. Few men, few presidents could survive intact the hateful political arena that became, through no fault of his own, the calling card of not only his administration, but what sadly has allowed circumstances beyond Trump's control to give birth to the vengeful man he is today. Craig, it's unfortunate. But today's Donald Trump is not the same man he was in 2016 nor in 2020, for our still-beloved former president has now become a candidate driven not only by hate, but by his overwhelming need for revenge, no matter the cost to our country or to America's collective soul. You know, it's a very interesting compare and contrast between the Donald Trump running in 2016 and the Donald Trump running today. But looking forward, how does the legal quagmire that Trump is trying to negotiate play in to the revenge politics scenario and this campaign round for 2024? Wow. You know, as of now, three serious federal indictments linger in Trump's future including special counsel Jack Smith's 45-page indictment where Trump is being charged with four counts, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights, whatever that means thus basically accusing Trump of criminality in his trying to overturn, to steal the 2020 election. And this, in Democrats' minds, helped to fuel on the so-called January 6th, anything but insurrection. 
And not to be forgotten is the first indictment that pertains to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, where Trump faces 40 felony counts of mishandling supposedly classified documents, and the second indictment, where he faces 31 felony counts of willful retention of classified records, plus seven counts related to his alleged effort to obstruct the investigation. Three time-consuming and monetarily draining federal indictments, draining for the Trump campaign and for him personally, indictments whose ramifications would surely spill over into a second Trump presidency, three federal indictments, not including the soon-to-come Georgia state indictment, all designed and delivered to take the focus off Joe Biden and his ne'er-do-well sons pay-for-play criminal scandal. But unfortunately, Craig, while revenge can be sweet in the hands of the nefarious, it can backfire in the hands of those whose innocence is overshadowed by narcissism that runs deep. So do you think that is what's driving Trump in this campaign? I mean, we know, and and you've said it very well earlier in the piece, that you know, Trump in 2016 was driven by America first and make America great again. Mm-hmm. You know, so what is it that's driving him in this campaign, in, in this revenge politics style? Well, here is where Trump runs into trouble for deeply engraved narcissism allows his need for revenge to dictate that he is not only owed a win in 2024 to compensate what he and many others this writer included, believe was stolen from him in 2020, but that all actions now taken by him, that all words spoken by him, be heralded as just and true, while issues important to most voters remain unspoken. Revenge, revenge, revenge. The Trump campaign has become based solely upon revenge, for we have yet to hear where Trump stands on the issues, nor have we heard even an alluding to his future agenda. Promises occasionally made to again drain the swamp at Trump rallies are just a rehash of promises not kept in 2016, a bone throw thrown to the blind following only Trumpers that holds little to no steam with the all-important, much-needed independent voters who want, who demand both policy substance and positive results after these disastrous Biden years. So while the Democrat-controlled media inadvertently helps to turn Trump into a political martyr, thus helping to not only fire up his base, but actually increase his support, and with his dominating the 24-7 news cycle, it becomes quite obvious that Donald J. Trump possibly will be the Republican presidential nominee. And while many will rejoice in this turn of events, know there is a downside being overlooked. A downside, Craig, that in Trump's campaign coffers have basically been bled dry as donations given to help him get elected are now being used to aid in his legal defense, something not sitting well with many of his donors. So as we look at the situation as it stands today, every time Trump gets indicted, you know, every time charges are brought, his poll numbers seem to rise. 
Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you think the Democrats at some point would realize this is likely having an adverse effect? Or do you think this is something they actually want to see happen? Well, the fact remains that even negative publicity is a publicity coup of sorts, which, when blindfolds are taken off, helps the Democrats in their quest to assure that Trump is the Republican nominee. Why so? Because Biden can still defeat Trump. And it's all courtesy of the fact that voting irregularities, that blatantly obvious voter fraud, has not been dealt with at all by the Republican hierarchy, and that the fraud committed in 2024 will be tenfold that of committed in 2020. Simply, the Democrats initiated revenge politics, basically overt, partisan-driven politicalization of the rule of law, will succeed where the Trump version of revenge politics will fail. Again, why so? Because not only is the timing too far off to allow for success, but that Republican leaders have yet to grow a spine. And even though Trump, when tried, will be able to present proof of not only his innocence, proof he was not allowed to present without an actual trial, and while proof of election fraud will also be presented, all will come too late to assure a second Trump presidency. So what is the answer to stopping the Democrats from holding on to the White House? It is really quite simple. No matter that some folks, most especially the only Trumpers, will not like it. For the fact is, that we do need two new candidates from both political parties running in 2024. Candidates unfeathered by drama, two candidates whose focus is on addressing the issues while putting what is revenge politics aside. And why? Because we already see the handwriting on the proverbial wall that Trump's main agenda as president will be revenge-based payback alone, while a second Biden presidency will make sure that Obama's transformation of America reaches its final fruition. Simply, with either of these men as president, I believe the unfortunate losers will be me, we, the American people, and our beloved republic as well. Case closed. You know, I got I got to ask you a question that I have not been able to ask you or not thought to ask you uh, mm-hmm. since you published this uh, yesterday. What has the response been um, from you know a lot of people that are only Trumpers? What uh, what kind of a response have you gotten on this op-ed? First of all, I have gotten a tremendous readership of it. Most of the response is surprisingly in my favor. People are tired of the drama, the revenge-based aspect of the drama. While the only Trumpers are still posting, no matter what, Trump 2024, There have been a great number of people that are now seeing, hmm, maybe we do need somebody else. 
You know, I think it was last Friday after uh, we got off the air. Um, I was sitting down to have a little bit of dinner, and I was flipping through the TV channels. And what did I find but President Trump live at a rally somewhere? I don't remember where. Um, But I got in on the very beginning of it, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and listen to the whole thing. It was scheduled for two hours, and I think he went just short uh, of two hours uh, on this rally. And if I'm being honest, I would say probably 90% of everything he talked about is what you talk about. In this op-ed, he talked about things that were happening to him, things that have happened to him, um, you know, and how bad this is and how bad it is for the country that that I, your favorite president, uh, am being treated this way. I mean, you know, and while I agree with him that this is beyond a witch hunt at this point, where was all the stuff about what he's going to do to fix the problems this country has? He's talking a lot about what to do to fix the problems he has. Right. But what about the economy? What about energy independence? What about our military? What about our standing on the world stage? What about China? What's he going to do about uh, the, the situation in Ukraine. Now, he did mention Ukraine in the thing, but only to say if I had been elected in 2020, this would never have happened. Correct. Well, the other thing, you notice something you said, I, your favorite president. That's that's what he, that's the way he refers to himself. I do not consider Donald Trump my favorite president. My favorite president was Ronald Reagan. I agree, but I'm just telling you the way he refers to himself. That's narcissism in its own right. You think? I know. <laughs> you know, that nobody will ever rightfully accuse Donald I mean, you can accuse Donald Trump of a lot of things, but nobody will ever accuse him of humility. Exactly. You know, and, and there's I- a time and place for that. There's a time and place to be bold and brash. Mm-hmm. And if you're running for president, even under these circumstances, I would think it would be bold and brash of him to get out there and talk about, elect me and here's what I'm going to do to fix the problems that you have around your dinner table. Right. Right. Trump, like I said in the beginning, I will vote for him for the third time if he gets the nomination. But I'm tired of the drama. I'm tired of the narcissism. Do I think he was the greatest president? No. Do I think he was a good president? Yes. But I don't think he will be right for the world of 2024. We're dealing with a different world than 2016 And I don't think he will allow the important issues to overtake. I'm getting even. I got even. Look how good I did. I got even. It's just a mess right now. We have a lot of other good candidates that are running. You know, three come to my mind. My personal favorite, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott. 
And then there are some others that are, you know, so-so. I think people need to stop looking at Trump as, you know, he's God's gift to the presidency and maybe look at some of these other candidates. Well, I'm not saying not to vote for Trump if he gets the nomination. You have to vote for Trump if he gets the nomination. There is no choice. But maybe there are better people to well, run in 2024 against Biden. You know, uh, common sense tells you to look at candidates who are talking about the best program going forward to bring this country back to what it should be. Who's got the plan? Who's talking about the plan to fix the economy, to get us back on track with energy independence? Who's talking about a plan to uh, fix the woes that the military has and to deal with China and to deal with Iran, um, you know, to deal with Russia? You know, who's putting forth those blueprints right now? And it's not Donald Trump, but it is Ron DeSantis. Yes. And to a lesser degree, Tim Scott. I mean, and, and, you know, Nikki Haley, no one knows more these candidates about foreign affairs than Nikki Haley. She was a U.N. ambassador that put the Muslims in their place. I mean, they threw her into the den of thieves, thugs, and despots. Exactly. And she she wound up ruling the roost in there. Exactly. You know, I mean, when it comes to foreign affairs, she's the one. But, I mean... You know, you got to look at the bigger picture. You got to look at the overall picture. Um, you know, and if revenge, 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 as you so well state in the op-ed, is the key, then Donald Trump's your man. But if you're looking forward and you're looking for who's going to carry this country back to prominence in every way, shape, and form to make this country strong the way it should be, and who is going to set the stage properly. For 2028 and 2032, it's it's probably a different candidate than Donald Trump. That's what I say. You know, I mean, it just is what it is. Folks, if you go to Diane's blog, thepatriotfactor.blogspot.com, you can find the link to this article. Read it through yourself. And even if you have questions about it, just hang on to it. Spread it around if you can. Because I think you're going to see a lot of what Diane's talking about play out here over the next 10 to 15 months. And that's how long we've got until we get to the general election is 15 months. Also, you can go to rspradio1.com and you can get the link to her article, The Reality of Revenge Politics, there as well. So either place you go, you can get the link and you can share it far and wide. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's a sad situation we're in right now. Yeah, and you know really that's, that's why I watched the Trump rally the other night because I thought I'm going to see if he's actually talking about things in the rally that he's not saying on social media or that he's not dropping as sound bites uh, to the mm-hmm. media. You know, when when microphones and cameras are around him, and it really was just you know. Uh, here's what they're doing to me. Isn't this terrible? And I'm going to, I'm going to clean these people out <coughs> and I'm going to take care of this cause I'm doing it for you. 
you know, but no real blueprint going forward on fixing all the problems that Biden has caused. Exactly. And that, that Biden on Obama's bidding has right. caused. Right. Right. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's be perfectly honest about that. Yes. Uh, grab Diane's link either way you can, thepatriotfactor.blogspot.com or rspradio1.com and share it everywhere. With that, we've come to the end of this segment, which means we have one to go. And I'll be talking about historical facts versus liberal lies. Stay with us. There's more to come on Right Side Patriots after this. Hi, guys. Diane Sorry from The Patriot Factor on thepatriotfactor.blogspot.com, where I found a home base seven years ago after becoming one of Facebook's longtime Facebook felons, or so I've been told by the Facebook gods. On my blog, you will find not only my articles, but our Right Side Patriots investigative reports, as well as stories and links to and from well-known writers and bloggers, plus what I call almost daily memes, my snarky take on news of the day. And for more great takes on the issues of the day, check out the National Patriot at thenationalpatriot.com, where you can read Craig's insight into all the current news happenings. And join us both on Right Side Patriots every Tuesday and Friday night from 7 to 9 p.m. EST at rspradio1.com. You're listening to Right Side Patriots Radio, the best in conservative commentary, news, and talk where we do away with the politically correct nonsense and give you the politically direct truth. This is the home of Right Side Patriots every Tuesday and Friday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with Craig Andreessen and Diane Sori. We're working to make this country great again from the right and leaving puddles of melted snowflakes on the left. Thanks for listening to Right Side Patriots, your best bet on the Internet. You're listening to RSPRadio1.com. Welcome back to Right Side Patriots on RSPRadio1.com. Craig Andreessen and Diane Sorry getting you through a Tuesday night edition of the show. If you miss any part of it, you want to go back and listen to it, you can. Tomorrow morning, go to rspradio1.com, hit the podcast button. We'll be there waiting for you. Mm-hmm. All right, so there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately about Florida's, that 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 goofy little state of Florida that nobody <laughs> even hardly knows exists, um, and their new curriculum when it comes to black history in their schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've been listening to liberals wad up their panties over the whole thing. And, you know, a week ago, that idiot Kamala Harris had to, had to throw in on this thing. And that was it. I had had about enough. I don't blame you. I think, you know, uh, most of the country has had enough of her. 
you know, so I, I decided, hey, this is something I got to tackle in a commentary and I got to get the actualities out there in public. Uh, historical facts versus liberal lies. Here's a quote for you. Instruction includes how slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, unquote. Now that's the quote, the line from the benchmark clarification about slave labor in the new Florida black history curriculum that has become the latest liberal panty wadding tool to promote racism in the United States. Last week, Kamala Harris was once again in Florida, and once again, according to the Vapid VP, quote, right here in Florida, she said, right here in Florida, they plan to teach students that enslaved people benefited from slavery, unquote. But that's not at all what the curriculum says, is it? That line, taken out of context and then twisted into propaganda, literally says that slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. It does not say that enslaved people benefited from slavery. There is a difference, and it's a big difference. But the vapid VP is trying to gaslight people into believing a fake statement from the curriculum exists. Essentially, what Harris and those parroting her and her false screed are saying is that slaves, black people during those atrocious years, were just too damn stupid to learn anything and were too damn stupid to apply anything they may have learned as a way to benefit them in any way, whether while still enslaved or after they were freed by an old white Republican president. So how does that hit you, black people? You are descended from idiots that were just too butt stupid to realize that the skills they attained while living in the most horrendous of circumstances were useful. You, black people, are descended from a bunch of unresilient louts who were no better than or smarter than a pile of doorknobs. You are descended from morons who learned carpentry, blacksmithing, maybe tailoring, cooking, farming, reading, or writing, but had no wherewithal to apply those skills for anyone's benefit other than the Democrats who thought they owned them. While slavery in the South primarily only benefited slaveholders, the Democrats during those dark days in American history you would have to be as stupid as today's Democrats think you are to not realize that a good many slaves did learn valuable skills and did use those skills to benefit themselves during and after slavery. Oh yes, Diane, today's Democrats still think that black people are a bunch of idiots who can't get into college or can't get a good job based on merit and thus require their current owners to assist them with affirmative action. But that is just plain wrong. Yes. So many people are getting the intent of this particular sentence. They go through the whole you know, curriculum and they pick out 
they cherry pick basically one sentence that they totally get wrong. And that includes some black professors. Yeah. Also get it wrong. One of those is Marvin Dunn. He's a psychology professor emeritus at Florida International University. And he says, and I quote, most enslaved people had no special skills at all that benefited them following their enslavement. For almost all of their skill was picking cotton. An enslaved man who was made to be a blacksmith might have been a king had he not been captured and taken from his country. Is he supposed to be grateful? Enslavement prevented people from becoming who and what they might have been, and that was slavery's greatest injury to humankind, unquote. First of all, Mr. Dunn is leaving out some very important information, such as the fact that in most cases it was black tribal members within Africa who rounded up members of other tribes for the white slave traders. Perhaps had some of those who were rounded up managed to stay in Africa, they too could have rounded up fellow Africans for the slave traders. Mr. Dunn says enslavement prevented people from becoming who and what they might have been. He says they may have been kings in Africa. Well, let's check on how things are going in tribal Africa and see the grand advancements that have been made there by descendants of those who escaped their fellow African captors back in the day. And I've got embedded in my blog a video that shows you some of that. None, Harris and others, are harping about Florida's new black history curriculum and failed to mention yet another important event that took place as slavery in America came to an end, the Back to Africa movement. Now, even before the end of slavery, that movement was sending any black people from America, former slaves, who wanted to go back to their home country of their ancestors. Now, that movement paid for by the U.S. Treasury Department, eventually failed because most former or freed slaves simply didn't want to go. But the few thousand who did return to Africa settled in Liberia. Now, it may come as a surprise to many, and it certainly won't be talked about by the propagandists on the left, but those former slaves created Africa's first republic, and they based it on the U.S. Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Interestingly, those Liberian settlers, 4,000 free blacks and 7,000 former slaves, most of them lighter-skinned than the inhabitants of Liberia, kept their American names and emulated the antebellum American South they had left behind. They dominated the darker-skinned indigenous Liberians. Diane, the formerly oppressed, once back in Africa, actually became the oppressors. Yeah, and there was another kind of uh, interesting event. Once these people became the oppressors of now the oppressed, a civil war came about, didn't it? Yeah, oddly enough, you know, it took a civil war to change things in our country. Well, in 1989, civil war erupted in Liberia and eventually became a full-blown tri- 
<coughs> excuse me, tribal war. Now, by the mid-1990s, a peace accord of sorts was in place, but in the few years that followed, roughly 5,000 Liberians resettled in the United States as a result of the civil and tribal Liberian wars. Since the end of those wars, Liberia has returned to a predominant state of tribalism with high unemployment, food shortages, and with men, women, and children being selectively killed or maltreated because they belong to one tribe or another. In Liberia today, child labor is rampant, disease is rampant, illiteracy is rampant, and so too is corruption. Life expectancy today in Liberia is roughly 63 years. So much for being better off back in the African homeland. While many freed slaves soon died of disease or starvation in America after the Civil War ended, the vast majority, being more resilient, more resourceful, and far more intelligent than their Democrat slaveholders, managed to use whatever skills they had garnered or had passed down from generations of slaves before them to exist, to survive, and to eventually provide a life for themselves and for their families. Diane, obviously, that is not to claim that they benefited from slavery, only that they learned skills that they benefited from. Yeah, and what most people forget is by the time of the Civil War, by the time that um, President Lincoln freed the slaves, this was not even first or second generation slaves. These were now slaves that were born here. Right. And that's an important fact that people forget. It's it's a very key fact because – Although generations removed from their tribal ancestors, freed and former slaves were still strangers in a new land, even though by the end of the Civil War, the overwhelming vast majority of American slaves had been born in the U.S. The culture, for better or worse, that their ancestors knew was completely foreign to them. Determination played a huge role in survival for the freed and former slaves after the war, and only the skills they had learned during slavery provided them a way to move forward. Those with specific skills fared better, and that's exactly what Florida's curriculum is saying. Nothing more. William B. Allen is the former chairman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, a professor emeritus of political science at Michigan State University, and he's now a member of Florida's African American History Standards Work Group. Mr. Allen is a black man and a descendant of former slaves. Allen, in large part, wrote the Florida Black History Curriculum that fools like Kamala Harris are now condemning. If Mr. Allen is not qualified to be the primary architect of Florida's black history curriculum, I, for one, would like to know who is. The problem that Harris, Nunn, and sadly even GOP presidential candidate Tim Scott seem to have with the curriculum is that it teaches actual history and skips the indoctrination aspects that liberals want taught as facts. 
Florida's Black Curriculum is an honest, factual look at the history of black people in America that does not shy away from the atrocities committed during slavery, nor does it ignore the fact that even slaves, in the midst of brutality and inhumane acts, were both resourceful and resilient. The early history of black people in America is very complex, and there is a good deal of it that today's liberal ilk simply want to erase. Have you ever heard of a man named Nat Butler? Well, Nat Butler was a black farmer in Maryland who on a regular basis would both buy and sell black slaves for the southern trade. He was not alone. Free blacks owned slaves in Boston by 1724 and in Connecticut by 1783, and by 1790, 48 black people in Maryland owned 143 slaves. Free blacks in the North were even able to and did own white slaves. And here's a quote from free blacks in Louisiana as the Civil War was approaching. The free colored population of Louisiana own slaves, and they are dearly attached to their native land, and they are ready to shed their blood in her defense. They have no sympathy for abolitionism, no love for the North, but they have plenty for Louisiana. They will fight for her in 1861 as they fought to defeat or to defend New Orleans from the British in 1814 and 15. Diane, in all, 3,776 free Negroes owned 12,900 slaves in America. Yeah. What's really surprised is this group of uh, black slaves, a specific number of them, actually took an oath to defend not the North, but the Confederacy. Fourteen companies of militia composed of 440 black men were organized by the governor in May of 1861 into what was called the Native Guards Louisiana, swearing to fight to defend the Confederacy. At its peak, there were more than 1,000 black soldiers in Louisiana fighting to keep slavery as an institution in the South. Black people owning black slaves in America began in in 1654, but those numbers began to decline between 1820 and the beginning of the Civil War. And while many have proposed theories as to why free blacks, many of whom where former slaves themselves would become slaveholders themselves, I might offer a theory that seems to be absent from the mix. It could just be that black people, keeping other black people as slaves, was simply just part of the African culture that was passed along from one generation to another by black people in America. As I said, it's complex. So how good is the new Florida Black History curriculum? Well, it's so good that the ilk of Kamala Harris had to cherry-pick one sentence from a 216-page course outline and then lie about that sentence in order to have something to bitch about. 
The curriculum, as authored primarily by a black descendant of slaves, is so spot on that liberals literally have to make something up in order to criticize it. The bottom line is that the sentence from the Florida curriculum that Kamala is lying about says what it says, it's 100% correct, and that's that. Yes, it is definitely correct. I've read the Florida curriculum regarding this. It is so direct, so concise, so truthful. But then again, Kamala Harris wouldn't know the truth if it came up and just, you know, got into her face. She has no concept of truth. But the thing people need to understand is, yes, slavery's, you know, slavery was a bad thing. Of course, it's, it's an issue to take your fellow human beings and basically make them beasts of burden. Nobody is saying that slavery was just. However, look where Africa is today. <laughs> There's still slave trade going on there, black-on-black black slave trade, black-to-white slave trade, um, Muslim slave trade going on. The continent of Africa, for the most part, I'm not saying all of it, but for the most part, is living like they lived in the days of slavery. It's still very tribal Tri- in most, tri- most parts. It's tribal. It's undeveloped. The people are uneducated. And you know who I blame for that? The liberals and the wealthy black athletes and singers and such in this country who have done nothing to help the people that they claim to love so much that they have to, you know, badmouth everybody that's white. Well, I'll tell you what. First of all, I don't want our government getting mixed up in trying to save Africa from itself. Our right. government, our government uh, can't organize a two-car parade. Uh, you know, that not this government. I mean, you know, it, it. You know, Ronald Reagan said, you know, the the most feared words in the world are, "I'm from the government and I'm here to help." Um, exactly. <laughs> and and he was 100% right. You know, but but you're correct, Diane. I mean, you've got all these people that are quick to condemn the United States 150 years after the end of slavery for slavery. Mm-hmm. But they won't say a word about the slavery that still continues in Africa. You know. Africa, we let's put it this way. If regular People born in this country, raised in this country, I don't care if you're black, white, purple, or pink, and you go to Africa beyond certain major large cities, you couldn't survive because you'd be living like you lived a thousand years ago. Well, and let's be honest, things even in the large cities aren't like things here. Correct. I don't see anybody beating down the door. To go back to Africa today. No. You know, you, you've got people over here screaming and yelling. They want reparations, right? They want reparations for slavery. And handouts, yeah. Right. You know, they, they say, well, you know, we, we want our reparations. 
People that were never slaves want reparations from people that were never slaveholders. Well, you know what? If I had my way, I would make one of the conditions, hey, if you take reparations, you've got to take your reparations and go back to Africa and never come back here to this country. Uh, I have no problem with that. You know, you think if, it's if, so bad here, you take our money, then you go back and change the way your people are living. Yep. You know, you, you hate it here? You think you think you got problems here? And you want reparations? Even though mm-hmm. you were never a slave, and even though the people paying for the reparations were never slaveholders? Well, fine and dandy. Take your reparations. And a one-way ticket, and you're back to Africa, and you're never allowed to come back to this country again. Right. You know? Right. But but don't take the money and stay here and bitch about this country. Exactly. Well, you know what added to all this problem? The day the first statue was taken down from the Confederacy, the day the first Confederate flag was burnt, a stop should have been put to this along with the belief that America has always been a slave nation. Here's a little history tidbit, folks. Slaves have been in this country since the early 1600s. America did not become America until 1776. In the years between the 1600s and 1776, our country was property of Great Britain. So if you say America has always been a slave nation since the 1600s, you obviously didn't stay awake in history class. (laughs) Slaves in this country were only slaves for, what, about 85 to 89 years. They have not been slaves in this country for hundreds of years. That's just a fact. It's just a fact. And that's that's why I put this particular commentary together historical facts versus liberal lies you know mm-hmm. they're, they're, and it is lies yeah they're they're plucking one sentence out of a 216 page outline it's not even something that's being taught to kids it's the outline for the teachers right, right? And they're, they're plucking this one sentence out and then they're changing the sentence because the sentence itself doesn't say what they need it to say to, to have something to criticize. So they have to, to lie about the agenda. sentence. Right. They have to lie about that sentence in order but to what, criticize the sentence. You know what gets me about all this? Instead of them taking the blame for, oops, we misread this, they're throwing all the blame on Ron DeSantis. He didn't even write it. And that's why I He put didn't the, write it, folks. That's why I included the author of the curriculum in this thing, a black man who is a descendant of slaves. Exactly. You know, I mean, it, it's, I mean, come on, folks. So as I was starting to put this commentary together, I thought, you know, I, I can sit here and criticize Kamala Harris, but people need to understand some of the other aspects of slavery that Kamala doesn't want them to know. They need to understand the truth behind how slaves were rounded up in Africa and how they were and who rounded them up in Africa. They they need to understand that there was once a movement right during the Civil War at the end of it for slaves to go back. And very Mm -hmm. few did. Very few wanted to go back. They wanted to stay here. Imagine that. You know why, Craig? 
the conditions were worse back in Africa than they were here. And they knew it. Yes. They, they knew that. Of the few thousand that did go back, they set up Africa's first republic, and they modeled it on the U.S. And let me ask you a question. Here it is throughout history, all peoples, all countries, they have moved forward from their past. They've become modernized. They've become um, part of the modern day world. Africa has never stepped out of their past. Right. Why? You know, I, it's, I, 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 can't, I can't really explain it. You know, I don't think I mean, anybody can. Yeah, I mean, you know, I look at my ancestors coming from England, Ireland, and primarily Scotland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody was somebody else's slave at one point or another in that little trifecta. And, and yet those countries have moved forward in all areas of society but one. They still can't cook to save their asses. Ah, okay, that's funny. You know, I mean, also, you, you just uh, don't yeah. see you don't see famous Scottish chefs. I mean, yeah. you just don't. Well, also, people need to remember that every people, every every race, creed, color, and religion at one time or another has been a slave of someone else. This right. is not the sole property of black people yeah a lot of people think uh saint patrick famous for saint patrick's day is the most famous irishman to ever live he was actually a scotsman that was captured by the irish and held as a slave (laughs) not by the irish you know and i mean and there's two people that are so white they're transparent (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we're talking about, you know, a race of people who can be sunburned by a light bulb. So Yeah. I mean, know. Jews were slaves of the Egyptians. Christians were slaves of the Romans. Throughout history, every, every group has been slaves at one time or another. None of them are asking for reparations. They've all moved on. They've assimilated. They've become part of the countries they live in. They have got their lives together, moved on. Only this group. You don't hear this cry for reparations from black people living in the islands. No. No. Only here do you hear this. And most of it comes from the ilk like BLM. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, you can get the commentary, Historical Facts versus Liberal Lies, either by going to my blog, thenationalpatriot.com, or by going to rspradio1.com. Either place, you can get the link, and hopefully you can share it everywhere. But, Mm -hmm. Diane, with that, you and I have run out of time. And with that, we'll see you next Tuesday and nighty-night. Folks, have yourselves a great great rest of the week. Remember, we're off this coming Friday, so catch you on Tuesday. Bye-bye.